I was going to tell you to take a seat, but you beat me to it. I do have a little bit of good news. Everyone says when the preacher preaches, it should always be good news, but we have some special good news. Um, for some of you, you might say this is old news, but um, Cameron and Caitlin are engaged. So congratulations to them. In case you don't know, I'm talking about Cameron who's sitting way up here and Caitlin who's sitting way back there. That is who I'm referring to uh, this morning, so congratulations uh, to them. Uh, you know, as, as humans, I think we are, have been built with this innate sense and desire for things to be just, fair, and equitable. I mean, at least as early as kids can start talking, don't they start demanding things to be fair? Dad bowl pours the two boys a bowl of cereal. And what does the one boy who can talk say? But he got more than me. And we have this innate sense of justice. We want things to be fair and equitable. And that sense of justice is complicated by the fact that we also have this, uh, this self-serving bias when it comes to justice. That, that we tend to look at justice more through our own eyes than through a neutral perspective. There's this sociological experiment that they did trying to get at the heart of this, and they asked participants to write a paragraph about a time recently that you made a mistake, and then write a paragraph about a time recently when someone did something that made you mad. And so they have these two perspectives. The first is from uh, the somebody who did the wrong thing, and the other is somebody who did wrong to them. And they noticed a pattern in the responses. And so the first is the victim responses, the, the person who somebody did something that made them mad. And the pattern was this, was that they never started off, um, oh, sorry, we're going to talk first about those who, who, who did something that made someone else mad. They, they made a mistake that affected someone else. And the pattern was they never started off with what they did wrong. They always started off with the backstory. And the backstory, of course, makes them uh, seem a little bit more innocent in the event. So, so the illustration is of cutting someone off. And rather than saying, I did a dumb thing, I cut someone off this morning, they would say, I stopped at Starbucks to get a coffee. And it wasn't until I got back on the road that I realized that the lid wasn't completely on my cup. And as I reached down to put the lid on my cup, I swerved over and I cut someone off this morning. And I don't do that sort of thing. I'm a great driver. It was just this one isolated event. That's how people talk about the things that they did that made someone else angry. But they talk very differently when somebody else does something that made them angry. And so staying with the cutting off thing, they go straight into what they did. Some jerk cut me off this morning on my way to work. And then the, what they continue to talk about are reasons why this is an especially egregious wrong the person did. I mean, it wasn't like there was a bunch of traffic or a bunch of things going on. It's just the two of us on the street, 6 o'clock in the morning, and out of nowhere, they swerve over into my lane. This world is full of incompetent people who don't know how to drive. And so if we're keeping a scoreboard of the wrongs that are done, when we do something wrong, we will at best say it's a minus one, but, but really when you think about all the extenuating circumstances, maybe it's a minus five in terms of against me for the wrong I've done. But then whenever we look at what somebody else has done, instead of us being minus one, they're going to get plus, minus three because this was an especially offensive, especially egregious thing. And at the end, they did the same thing as I did, 
but I'm in a better position because I only have minus one at worst and they have minus three points against them. And the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church in Rome, he knows this is the way we think. He knows this is the way that people approach the world. And he's going to address our sense of fairness and our sense of justice when it comes to God. And so we're beginning a new section in Romans, Romans 1, 18 through 3.20, where Paul is going to tell us that everyone deserves the wrath of God for their wrongdoing. He's going to spend chapter 1 saying specifically to the Jews why it is that they deserve to be under the wrath of God, or the Gentiles. And then in chapter 2, verses uh, through 3, 8, he's going to talk about why the Jews deserve to be under the wrath of God. And then he's going to remind all of us once again that Jews and Gentiles alike are not righteous and therefore deserve to be under the wrath of God. There's a reason why preachers should preach textually through books because it forces them to deal with subjects that are in the Bible that may not be popular. If we sent out a survey of sermons that we said, what are sermon topics you would like to hear me preach about? I suspect not many of you would say, the wrath of God. I, I love that topic. We need the wrath of God. Bring that topic to us. But this is the topic that Paul addresses that he believes is important for us. And so let's begin in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. This is the introductory statement for the next three chapters. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Now, you may not remember this, but back in, chapter, in verse 17, Paul has just told us that the gospel is revealing the righteousness of God. So what the gospel shows us is that God is right, God is just, God is fair, God is equitable. And then he turns around in verse 18, he says, now the wrath of God is revealed. And the question for us is, what is the relationship between the righteousness of God and the wrath of God? Some people will say these are two competing aspects. The righteousness of God over here, and it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. God's got this righteousness, and he's got this wrath, and it's like, which is going to win out? Is his wrath going to win out, or is his righteousness, righteousness going to win out? And they see these as two competing forces within God. If that were the case, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 would start with the word, but or however. Paul would say, hey, uh, we've got the righteousness, but there's this competing force. But Romans chapter 1, verse 18 begins with the word for, which means he is about to show us a reason for or an explanation of the righteousness of God. In other words, Paul will say the righteousness of God, the wrath reveals his righteousness. The wrath of God will show that he is indeed right and just and equitable. When you see the wrath of God, you should step back and say, this is proof that God is righteous. Think about it this way. If you had a babysitter and, and they weren't able to make it and you asked for a recommendation and someone said, hey, you should call this person because they're trustworthy and they're honest and they show up on time. All of those are reasons to show this is a good babysitter. When Paul says, I want to talk to you about the righteousness of God, his first proof that God is righteous is he will talk about the wrath of God. The wrath of God reveals and shows God's righteousness. The righteousness of God both leads to a way of salvation 
And his righteousness also leads to a place of wrath for those who are disobedient to God's teaching. So maybe to unpack this, we need to ask the opposite question. What would make God unrighteous? And the first thing is God withholding his righteous punishment on sin. I think our culture today has this, uh, this split personality when it comes to justice, judgment, righteousness. So I want you to ask yourself, what kind of a world would you like to live in? What kind of a society would you like to be a part of? Would you like to be a part of a society where there is no justice, where there is no judgment, where there is no righteousness? Some people act like they want to be a part of a society like that. But imagine you lived in a world that functioned in that way. When somebody was being abused, and they said, this isn't right, and everyone around them said, well, I mean, it's really not that big a deal. I mean, just a few few black eyes here and there. That's not anything we need to worry ourselves with. Would you want to live in a world like that? Or somebody is cheating and extorting and stealing and bribing and they're getting rich and you go to somebody and say, we need to deal with this. And they say, well, you know, I mean, look, just because they're stealing all of your money and you now can't retire and you can't afford your house anymore and you're going to live on the street, like, I, I don't really think this is something we need to worry about. We do not want to live in a world where there is wrongdoing that goes unpunished. All of us innately want a sense of fairness. The second thing that it would make God unrighteous if his wrath was disproportionate to the sin. If, if, if we, we find that um, if, if, I, if I cross the street when I'm not supposed to and I get the electric chair for it, we'd say, well, that's not righteous. And yet as we look at God's righteousness, God's righteousness of, is of a different kind and essence of anything that we have experienced. Uh, Becky Piper, I think, says this well of God's wrath. God's wrath is not a cranky explosive, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. When you go to the doctor and they say, we need to have a serious approach to this cancer, you might say, but right now I feel fine. Look, look at all the things I can do. I... And yet, the doctor realizes if this is not addressed with absolute seriousness, it will eat away everything. And God recognizes the same thing of sin. It is a cancer that destroys. And the third thing that would make God unrighteous is if his wrath was distributed inconsistently. If God said, well, you know, you, you Jewish people, you're my special people, so you get, a, you get a special permit that allows you to get away with things. And the Gentiles, well, you're not a part of my people, so I'm going to treat you differently. And in fact, isn't that what this whole point of Romans 1 is about, is to find out whether you are Jew or Gentile, you are going to be subject to the wrath of God in an equal sense and in an equal manner. So I mentioned earlier, we have this self-serving scoring system. And so Paul predicts what a Gentile reader might say of Paul saying that the righteousness of God is revealed in the wrath of God. That Gentile reader might say, well, hang on a minute. I didn't have the Holy Scriptures growing up. And nobody told me about the mighty acts of God. I, I wasn't even taught in my house about God. And now God's going to show me punishment even though I don't know anything about Him. That's not fair. And to that, here's what Paul writes. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For ever since the creation of the world, 
His eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things He has made. So they are without excuse. Creation has clearly revealed the invisible aspect of God. Creation makes it clear enough that everyone is without excuse, that people should know there is indeed a creator who made this world. It would be like the student who comes home with a failing test grade. And mom and dad say, well, how'd you get such a low score? Well, the teacher told us the test would be over chapter one and two. So that's the studies, chapters I studied. But the test was actually over chapter one, two, and three. And I failed because I didn't know what was going to be on the test. If you're a good parent, you march into that teacher, don't you? Say, you told my child this test was going to be in chapters one and two, but it included chapter three. And what would you do if the teacher calmly said to your, your child, can you turn to the page I gave the night before the test? And they turn there and they say, could, could you read that last sentence that's in bold? This test will be on chapters one, two, and three. Your child is now without excuse. It was very clear what the test would be covering. And in a very similar way, what Paul is saying is the existence of creation is enough revelation to know God and to know that God has certain expectations of people. And therefore, even the Gentiles who don't have the scriptures, don't have the mighty acts of God, they're going to be responsible for the choices they make. When you look at creation, it should be clear enough that there is a creator. Steve Jobs, prior to his death, said, I'm 50-50 on believing in God. But he followed up by saying, For most of my life, I felt there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. And to that, Paul would say, that's exactly what God has done. He's lauded and made it clear to all of us, there is more to our existence than meets the eye. So to the Gentile who says, how am I supposed to know? Paul will say the creation is enough. And so Romans chapter 1 verse 21, then Paul says, For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and senseless minds were darkened. Knowing there is a creator, there is a natural demanded response to that. We are to honor, or the other word used there is to glorify him and to give him thanks. What's a core fundamental thing about what is required of us as humans? It's outlined right here. What's your life about? It's about glorifying God. And it's about giving Him thanks. It's the basic fundamental role for us as humans. But what did they do? Romans 1.23, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. So we've been created to give thanks and glory to God. That's the way that God made the world. And yet what is happening within this Gentile world is instead of giving glory to God, they're giving glory to these images that represent people and animals and, and, and their thanks and all of their glory is given there. So they have flipped upside down the very order and the very structure of what people ought to do in response to this creator God. And so Romans 1.24 begins with the word, Therefore... In, in light of the fact that you knew the glory of God and you should give Him glory and give Him thanks, you instead gave that glory and thanks somewhere else. Therefore, they have traded, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to 
impurity. That statement bothers some people. What does it mean that God gave them up? Be clear, it does not mean God gave up on them, but it means that God handed them over to the very things that they already wanted and they already desired. And God, in His infinite wisdom, knows if you go down this pathway, it will lead to a way that degrades you and debases you as a person. And yet, everyone kept saying, but I still want to go. So the image is of, of this one author says, it's like we're, we're sitting in a boat in a river with a rushing stream, and God's holding on to the boat. And God says, I'm doing it for your good. And we're in the boat saying, but we want to go downstream. Let go. We want to go see what's down the stream. And eventually, when God hands them over, what does He do? He lets go of the boat, and the boat goes to the place where we always wanted to go to begin with. God gave them up to their very own lust, to their very own desires. God punishes them, in fact, by giving them exactly what they want. The blame rests here on us as free moral agents who exchange God's glory to try to do things of our own means. Notice that language is used in 125. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They exchanged, they bartered, they traded. God gave them the truth and they said, what do I want to do with this truth? Hey, give me that lie and I will exchange it for this truth. They knew God was the creator and they said, what do you want to do with that knowledge? And they said, rather than give me him, I'm going to trade and I'm going to barter and I'm going to exchange it for another sense of glory. And when you make this exchange, what you're doing is you're, you're upending the moral order of God you're upending the natural order with which God wanted the world to be made. And Paul says when we violate this moral order, everything is upended in our lives. And then he's going to prove to us in a way that even the Gentiles of that day would say, this is not natural. Something has been upended in the world. Romans 1, 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And if you ever want to map out how far away sometimes a culture can get from what God teaches to where that culture is this would be a great example. The very thing that Paul pointed to, that even pagans would say, something's wrong here when, when women are having relationships with women and where men are having relationships with men. That's a sign that even Gentiles can tell the natural order has been upended. We live in a culture that is teaching us not only is it not upending God's natural order, it's something lovely and wonderful and beautiful. So what's our response? I think we need to recognize that same-sex practices are not a gift from God to be enjoyed. They're something that God gives us as a sign that something is wrong in the world. And that that degrading experience is not something that brings blessing or pleasure to people, but instead brings this pain that God wanted to save people from. But there is another insight here. And that is that the problem here, that this same-sex relationships is a symptom of a larger problem. 
If you've ever tried to solve a problem by addressing the symptom, you will find that you never solve the problem. The problem here is not same-sex relationships. That is the symptom of what? When people exchange the glory of God for the glory of anything else. So how do you fix this problem? You fix the problem by fixing the problem, not the symptom, which is that people need to recognize, once again, we are created. And our Creator God has a natural order and structure. And if we give Him the glory and the thanks, then the world will return to the order in which God intended. After covering these examples, Paul will give a bunch of other examples in Romans 1, uh, 24, 28 through 31 that I'll let you read on your own time. And then he concludes this section in Romans 1, 32. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. God's wrath reveals his glory because God's fair penalty of death is for those who practice unrighteousness and those who encourage others to do the same. And again, we might wonder, well, is this really fair for God to do? So, a few more illustrations as we begin to understand what it would seem like for us if a, if a friend called you up and said, Hey, I, I just got arrested. What did you get arrested for? For shoplifting. I didn't know shoplifting was wrong. You say, Okay, well, man, you should have known shoplifting was wrong. How did you miss out on that? It's okay, I'm going to come down there. We'll go talk to the store. And you go down there, and as you get ready to open the front door of the store, you see a sign that says what? Shoplifters will be prosecuted. And do you say, oh man, yeah, I get, you, you didn't understand, you, you didn't know. You realize at that point, whatever is the store does to them, they are justified in doing to them because they knew from the very beginning what the exact outcome of their actions would be. Or you have a friend who calls you. A friend calls and says, hey, I think my car's been stolen. I'm downtown here. I went into the place real quick. I came out and my car's gone. Can you come pick me up? Come pick him up and say, we're going to go down to the police station, figure out who. And yet when you pick them up, you realize the car's parked where? Sign says, tow zone. What's going to happen to the car if it's parked there? It's going to get towed away. And then they say, but I didn't know. Say, so you cannot be without excuse if there's a sign right there that's telling you exactly what's going to happen if you violate that instruction. We all have our own sense of justice, our own sense of righteousness. But there is only one who knows justice fully, completely, and perfectly, and that is God. When God punishes the unrighteous, it is an expression of the fact that He is a righteous God. He will make all wrongs right. And yet we stand as people who use this skewed by system who, who, who feel like we're often more innocent than we really are. And so the first calling and the first obligation and the first expectation for Paul as he's going to begin to lay out the gospel in this letter is that we need to realize what we deserve. And what we deserve, as Paul's mentioned here, is they deserve death. And until I am able to say, I am guilty, I did what I knew I should not do, and I am responsible for my choices, then Paul knows that the gospel message will mean nothing to us. But I don't want to leave us in this place where we realize this, this judgment of God is coming because we'll turn back to Romans 1.17 that said, For in it the gospel, 
The righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. God is bringing about judgment on the unrighteous. And yet the gospel message that Paul is going to be preaching here is that on the basis of faith, even the righteous can be treated as if they, even the unrighteous can be treated as if they are righteous. That on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, life can be given to the lifeness. And in that, we once again experience the righteousness of God, who both gives us judgment, but also gives us opportunity for salvation and for deliverance. If you don't know this morning exactly where you stand in relationship with God, um, I'm going to be in the back. Some of our elders will be back there. I'd encourage you to come and have a conversation with us about what this might mean, about your ownership and your relationship with God, and we'd be happy to walk you through what the gospel teaches. Before we sing that uh, final song, I do want to offer a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And as we begin to leave this place, we go knowing that we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, So let's go and stand together. And if you need anything, I invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next.